thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. Well, my name is Megan, and I am definitely an alcoholic. Hi. So I was told that there wouldn't be many people here tonight, but obviously I was lied to. <laughs> and I, after I got off of uh, talking to Brian, I said, in 15 minutes from now, I'm going to be banging my head against the wall and saying, why did I say yes? But that wasn't the case. It was only five minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, my recovery date is December 3rd, 2021. I wrote notes so I don't forget things. Um, and I have a sponsor, and my sponsor has a sponsor, and my sponsor has a sponsor, sponsor, and you know how that goes. So um, I guess I want to start off with a little background, because in order to really explain what this program has done for me and how much it has changed my life, I need to go back a little bit, because the impact is severe for me. Um, so. I don't believe or even know if anybody in my family is an alcoholic. And I remember coming to meetings and hearing people speak and share their story and saying how, you know, they're a long line of alcoholism in the family. And I remember being and sitting there and being like, I don't know if that's my story at all. Um, and then I questioned whether I was an alcoholic because I haven't had that experience. Um, but I know I'm an alcoholic. And when I look back, I hear stories about my, uh, my dad picking up uh, his dad, my grandfather, at the bar and bringing him home late at night. And then um, I heard stories from my ex-husband about my dad and his drinking. Um, not too many details, but more or less, you know, he used to drink a lot. And then he got with my mother um, and she made him drink, uh, made him stop. And he hasn't touched alcohol since. Is he an alcoholic? I know I'm not supposed to say if somebody's an alcoholic or not, but something leads me to believe there might be some problems there um, because, I don't know, just an assumption I have. Um, so I have a father, my mom, my sister, who's three years older than me, and the complete opposite. I was the black sheep of the family. Um, growing up, it was very interesting. Um, so I have to say that my father had an extremely bad temper. Um, I don't think he really had coping mechanisms whatsoever. A uh, part of me thinks like that's why you might be like a dry alcoholic. I don't know. But um, he was really angry. He didn't handle stress whatsoever. He didn't handle any fighting between my sister and I. Um, he didn't handle anything. And it was either yelling or smacking was his go-to. And um, my mom, well, she was an unusual one too. She didn't handle reality either and all she did was clean. 
and get lost in the cleaning and um, was like so OCD about cleaning. That's the only thing she really cared about. And I think it's because she just, I don't know, she couldn't handle anything or even deal with reality in itself. So that's how she lived. And um, my sister and I didn't get along at all. And I remember, like, I used to have this closet. It was like a walk-in closet. And I was always, you know, always getting yelled at for this, that, this, that. Um, not on purpose. It was just my dad was easy, easy triggered. And I remember every time I was upset, I would go in the closet and uh, sit in the back of it and I would cry. And then my dad would call me out and we would talk. And I always remember him sitting at the bottom of steps and, you know, apologizing. And I always remember him, I don't know everything he would say. I remember sitting at the top of steps, he would be at the bottom of steps. And I always remember hearing him say, you know, I love you an awful lot. Um, but I think that's the most real, like, sign that there was any love there because I did not feel any love from my mom. I didn't feel any love from my dad. And I remember, like, when I would sick, be sick, um, my mom would say, oh, you're going to be in my way now. You better just go in the bedroom and stay there, you know. And that was as a little kid. And... To give an example of my dad's temper, one time we were at the beach, and I don't know, I was like single digits, and I was in the water, and he was next to me, and I remember being really excited and throwing my hands in the air, you know, water in the air, just out of excitement, and it got on his glasses. The water got on his glasses, and the first thing he did was smack me, because that was his go-to, um, and then he took his glasses off, and I just remember it like crushing my soul. 100%. So I really honestly don't have any good memories as a child. I really don't. I'm sure there was, but I, I don't remember those things. What sticks out to me is how I felt. And I felt unloved. I felt unwanted. And I felt really lonely. And my sister, I think she dealt with all of it by trying to be like my mom. And she was always trying to mother me as well. So I would say the first time I've touched anything was in seventh grade. I made a friends with an older girl and we were taking a walk and she was telling me about cocaine. And I was like, oh, I'm so down with that. Let's do it. So she went and got it and we did it in the, the bathroom of the high school. And of course the teacher walks in on us and says, are you guys smoking? And I'm like, no. And I'm thinking, God, little does she know. <laughs> mm. uh, but once I did that, I was like, yes, yes, yes. And from that moment on, I was like, I like this shit. <laughs> and then um, later that year, I made friends with my one best friend. And her parents were alcoholics. And they allowed us to drink as long as we stayed there. And I remember the first time getting drunk, and that was my goal. And uh, it was New Year's Eve, and I remember drinking, and then I would stand still and like hold on a second, and like, am I drunk? Am I drunk? I can't tell if I'm drunk. And I would drink more, and that was the whole goal was to get drunk, and that was always been my goal to get drunk. Um, I never drank for taste, never, never, never. In fact, I don't like the taste, but I like the effect. Um, so it seemed like every, every weekend, basically we got drunk 
As long as we stayed there, her parents let us drink. And um, back then, it was fun. You know, we laughed a lot. We were just silly kids. Um, and it was a lot of fun. But um, I understand the whole mental obsession part because during the week, I would just think about drinking and wanting, you know, the weekend to come so I could drink. And that seemed to be a pattern that followed me all the time. And um, so that's what we did. And that, that worked for a little bit. <laughs> and um, that just continued for a couple years. Um, and then whenever there was basically any kind of drug, anything, whatever, I could get high, drunk, whatever, it didn't matter. If it altered my mind, I was all about it. And I think because I think about, you know, some people say that they didn't feel right in their skin. I think when I drank or got high, I just felt free. Um, I didn't have to feel so much or feel what I was feeling. And I didn't even know what I was feeling. Because about that time, I started doing a lot of self-harming. I was a huge self-harmer. I remember the first time um, I uh, burnt my arm. And this, they made a mark size of quarter. And uh, I went to school and people were like, what happened? And it was not that big. And I said, I burned it getting something out of the oven. Because I wasn't um, a self-harmer as a cry for help. I was a self-harmer because I had so much pain in me and I did not know how to get rid of it. I did not know how to get it out. So the more blood, you know, the more release I felt. Um, I remember I was, I was smoke. And then I would wet my skin and I would put cigarettes out on my arm. And when it sizzled, you know, I felt like a, a sense, an ease, like they say with alcohol, I felt that. Um, and my parents were so strict. So there were a lot of times that I didn't do a lot. So I was in my room a lot and I would cry for no reason. I don't know why I was crying. <clears throat> I guess because I had a lot of pain. I would write poetry and then I would cut. And... Um, that seemed to happen quite often. And then um, when I was 16, I got pregnant. And uh, by my boyfriend, or my ex-boyfriend, he's my ex. And uh, I remember sitting in study hall and thinking, how am I going to tell my mom this? So, you know, back then they had pay phones. You know, those things, you know, you put a quarter in in the school. So um, I used that pay phone. And I called my mom and told her I was pregnant. And, um, of course, she was not happy with me. And, of course, she did not tell my dad because she purposely held things away from my dad so he would not flip out. Because when he flipped out, it was just the whole house. He had these eyebrows. And when he rose his eyebrows like this, you knew you were in deep shit. And you got to run. He still has his eyebrows today. But I have a relationship with him. And I have a relationship with my mom. And they're amazing. And it's because of the program. Um, so I never knew I had a voice and to say that I did not want to get an abortion, but I was forced to get an abortion because I never knew I had a voice period growing up. Um, and it was a really traumatic experience, um, going there and there was, you know, um, somebody out front gave me a brochure of like a fetus. And when I went in, I remember being there, the youngest kid there. And I purposely meant, wanted to stay awake um, because I wanted to pay for what my mistake was. I wanted to be, like, I really 
I just, I don't know. I really held a responsibility for it. And I remember the doctor saying, you could choose like what kind of birth control. And I remember choosing nothing. And a doctor said, hey, are you just going to come back here every time you get pregnant? And the nurse next to me, you know, tried to explain to him that I'm not choosing that. And I just remember the experience was extremely traumatic. Um, and from that moment on, like I was just on a downward spiral. And I just would beat myself up emotionally over it and physically over it. And my addictions took off even more. Um, and I've always wanted children. When I was little, like really young, I would write all the names that I would want to call my children. And like there's zodiac signs. And back then I was like really into zodiac signs. And um, I remember that. So that was a huge for me because always wanting to be a mother because I think I had a lot of love to give but nowhere to give it. And um, as time went on, uh, I was, um, I got kicked out of summer school and then my mom took me out of school because I was just out of control. Because I was like doing everything possible to rebel. Because one, I don't like authority. Two, I was trying to find some form of control. And um, when I was 18, I was working at Kmart back when those Kmarts had those little eateries, like the restaurant with the, the booths and everything. And um, that's when I started touching cocaine again. And I got really addicted to that. And that went on for quite some time. And I can't even tell you how long that went for. But I remember every night, like, praying and asking God to, like, let me stay awake or to wake up the next day. And I remember just stealing from my parents, stealing from my sister, stealing from my friends. And I was like, the only thing on my mind was getting high. Um, I really didn't care about anything else because I felt free when I was high. And um, so I did a lot of praying. And I do believe now looking back that it was, you know, God helping me get off, off of that. Back then, you know, I was really into angels and I did not feel anything towards God because I had no background as far as we never talked about anything religious, spiritual, nothing like that. So my view of God was askew. Um, but I believed in angels and I believed it was a spiritual experience that helped me get off of that. Um, let's see. And then I wound up meeting my ex-husband. Um, amazing man. And by then, um, I've kind of straightened out a little bit. Um, I wasn't really doing any drugs. I was drinking now and then. Um, but his parents were like, okay, if we drank. So I was back to doing the once a weekend drinking, binge drinking. Um, I remember coming in the rooms and not understanding whether I was an alcoholic or not, because my picture of an alcoholic was somebody with a brown bag and getting up every morning to drink. And that wasn't my story. But I can tell you, as soon as I drank, you know, that, that, that warmth would come over my throat, my chest, my stomach, all the way down to my toes. I would get this warmth. And from then, I would not be able to stop. So when they talk about that physical craving, I understand that. And when they talk about the mental obsession of this, I understand that. Because that's all I would care about then. Back to, you know, caring all about just getting drunk, getting drunk, getting drunk. And um, I got pregnant. And I told my ex-husband, now he's an ex, and I said, uh, we're getting married. And he was like, okay. 
So we got married and we bought a house and um, got married and then we had another child. So it was like in 98, I had my son. Well, in 97, I met Rob. 98, I had my son, my oldest. And then in 99, we got a home. In 2000, I had my middle son. So it was very unique. And he worked third shift. So he would sleep all night and I would wake up or he would wake up for like an hour before he went to work. And that was basically um, our relationship. And again, I felt extremely lonely and I felt unloved. And that, that was, was like my theme throughout my entire life. When I did my fourth and fifth step, I found out just the severity and how all my defects come down to worried or fear of being unloved or being lonely or not cared about. Um, so I was not able to stay sober for any of my pregnancies. I have three boys. They are amazing. They are healthy and they are my pride and joy. I actually have a Another grandchild on the way. She's in the hospital. My daughter-in-law's in the hospital tonight and um, with contractions. So, and I have a grandson. He's a year and a half, and he is everything to me. Um, but sadly, knowing how much I've always wanted to have children and wanted to be a mom, I was not able to stay sober for their pregnancies. And whenever I wonder if I have control or if I'm an alcoholic, um, I think back of how much I wanted to be a mom and the fact that I could not drink or not not drink through the pregnancies. Uh, with my oldest, I, I remember getting drunk two times, and I was deliberate. My middle son, I remember using the excuse that you can drink wine when you're pregnant, so why not two bottles? And, um, you know, I just find any loophole possible. And my third son, I was like, I got this. I'm not going to drink. So I remember it was New Year's Eve. I was like six months pregnant, and my husband then um, purposely left the house to go to a party for the night so I wouldn't be tempted to drink. Um, and then, like, I went over to my neighbor's house, and I had a glass of wine. And that was really just, you know, an honest, my intention was to have a glass of wine. And I did not understand um, the physical craving at that point. And I had the glass of wine, and then it started. And um, that craving hit. And when that craving hits, I don't have control over it. And I remember going back over to the house. But I didn't want to drink her wine, the rest of her wine, because I didn't want anybody knowing that I was drinking again through a pregnancy. Um, so I um, went over and finished off a bottle of Yukon Jack. And um, thankfully... My son is healthy, but that reminds me, whenever I wonder if I'm an alcoholic, I go back to that moment, knowing that my intention was to just have a glass of wine and then wound up drinking that large amount. So there's no question in my, my mind about being an alcoholic. Um, and my husband at that time was an amazing man, is an amazing man, um, but he became my punching bag. I took out all my pain, all every, every emotion out on him. Like that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, as soon as I drank, you know, it just, I didn't, it wasn't fun anymore because I would turn angry and upset and I would say things that, 
things that I'm just not capable of saying in my right mind. And he never deserved any of it. Not one bit. He was like my biggest cheerleader. Um, but I had so much pain. I didn't know where to go with it. So I directed it towards him. And um, around that time, we friended um, a couple, Jen and Jason. And I found um, Jason was in recovery. Um, and my ex kind of um, talked to Jason about getting me help. And um, Jason, you know, talked to me on the side. He said, how about going to uh, a DRA? I'm like, DRA? He's like, it's Dual Recovery Anonymous. And I'm like, okay. And he said, um, you know, it's for people with, like, you know, mental issues. And I'm like, well, that's great because I'm a mental case, 100%, and I own it, and I'm okay with that. Um, but I was like, yeah, that is my place, okay. And um, so I went to DRA, and that was back when, in, um, you know, where happy hour is. That was back when happy hour or back at the building where happy hour was, and it was on Saturdays, and that was my first time ever coming into any kind of recovery. One second. Okay. And um, so I remember going there and everybody being so nice to me, and it was amazing. I was like, it felt so nice, because like, I felt like I had friends, because the friends I did have, they went away, because we would party all the time and I would turn into a psycho. So a lot of them like were pushed away and a lot of them just grew older and got tired of all the partying, but I never did. I was trying to party like I was 21 or something all the time. And um, by the way, my birthday is Monday, I'm turning 25. <laughs> <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> um, but and I remember going in that room and it was like, I felt something in there. I felt something, something. When I left there, I felt different. And I also felt like not alone because I felt like people were talking to me that sincerely seemed to have an interest in me. So I started to go to DRA and then he talked about going to AA. And um, so I did. And it took me a little bit to, to really, like I said, to say that I was an alcoholic. Not that I was against it. I just did not relate to it whatsoever. Um, but then when I heard about people see, like taking other people's alcohol and not letting, you know, when people would not finish their drinks and would take other people's alcohol, like I related that 100%. Like when people would not finish their drinks, I'm like, like, people are wasting this alcohol. I'm like, are you freaking serious? It's like gold. And I used to ask people, like, you know, do you need a baby nibble for that to help you finish it? And if they didn't, I would take it because, you know, shit's like gold. So um, that's when how I realized, oh, my God, I am an alcoholic. Um, and I got a sponsor, and she didn't really, wasn't really, <laughs> I was willing to do the steps and everything, but she Apparently didn't go through the steps. I did not understand the steps because when I came in the rooms and listening to like we be able to read the big book and all, like it was just words. Like I didn't understand anything. It was like Chinese. People were speaking Chinese. And I was just like, what are they saying? So my mind could not grasp any of it. And um, so, um, so I started doing that, doing the AA, and I started to get sober. 
sorry, it's over. I stopped drinking. And they say, you know, how resentments are your number one offender. Well, <laughs> I got a resentment towards my mother-in-law. And <laughs> I love her. Um, I still call her my mother-in-law. And um, I remember doing the, I'll show you I'll hurt me. And I remember saying those words, I'll show you I'll hurt me. And I did, and I carved her name in my stomach a couple times. And I'm like, thank God that her name is only four letters long, because if it was any longer, it would be really bad. And um, so I remember calling my husband at work that night, telling him, crying. And he came home. He left work. He came home. And I remember vaguely him coming up to the steps with his little box, the first aid kit. He was quiet. He didn't say anything to me. And I laid there, and he, like, cleaned my stomach all up. Never said a word, but he was very compassionate with his energy. And um, he went back to work. And the next day, they talk about that incomprehensible demoralization. That's what I felt. I was ashamed. I was sad. I was all different feelings there. Um, so I got back into the rooms. It started, well, not that I left really, but um, uh, I stopped drinking or whatever. And um, I looked for a sponsor. And I remember seeing my sponsor. She was going to tell her story. And she was standing at the podium and I fell in love with her when she took out a big box of Tums or a big container of Tums and slammed them on the podium. And then she took out lavender spray and she started spraying them all over the place, everywhere. And I'm like, oh. I was like, yeah, yeah. And she was so funny. She was hysterical. And that's the way to win my heart, make me laugh. So I was like, totally. However, <laughs> my experience with the steps with her was very interesting. Because her steps, when she went through the steps, was interesting. The one time outside a meeting, she said, do you believe you are powerless over alcohol and your life is unmanageable? And I was like, yes. She said, do you believe a power greater than you can restore you to sanity? And I'm like, yes. And she said, are you willing to give your will over to God, blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, okay, you did one, two, and three. I'm like, okay. And then the fifth step was, uh, I remember doing the fears with her, and every time... <laughs> I would read the fear. She'd be like, so what? So what? I'm like, and she said, that's all she remembers her sponsor saying to her. It was, so what? So what? So that's what she said to me. I'm like, okay. So, um, <laughs> so I, I don't know if I benefited at that moment, but I know when my ninth step came, <laughs> I had an amazing moment. Um, I was to make amends to my neighbor's husband and um, because I used to get high with his daughter. And um, I was terrified of this guy. But I was like, I really want to make these amends. And his, uh, my neighbor at the time was like, you know, you don't have to say this to him. I'm like, yeah, I do. So I remember sitting down and praying and just asking God for help. And I think that was the first time I actually moved out of the way to let God do work. Because when he came um, and I went to apologize, like I don't know what came out of my mouth, but every, whatever was said was amazing. Because when he, he told me that I was forgiven and he said, thank you for being really a stand-up kind of girl. And I remember him driving away and I'm like, what the fuck did I just say? What just came out of my mouth? Because like, I was not there. I don't know what I said. And then I realized, oh my God. There is something really going on here. There is something to this. 
And from like, I think that moment on and so now, I've never doubted whether there was a God at all. Um, I just had to learn to get out of the way. And um, so I was, I was in, I went to sponsor women, which was amazing. I loved it. I still, I sponsor women now. Um, but that's why I really learned about the program. That's when I learned because I was taking these women through the, the steps and learning myself at the same time by going through the big book with them. And that made such an impact. I mean, that was life-changing for me because then things really made sense to me. However, I um, failed to stay connected. I started putting things in front of coming to meetings. Like, you know, um, I'm going to go to a meeting later. I just need to go to the grocery store. And because this disease is so cunning and powerful, you know, it just took me a little moment of weakness, a little whatever to make its way. And, you know, slowly and surely, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to come to meetings anymore. And I would come to meetings and complain about being an alcoholic. And I don't want to be an alcoholic because I don't want to have to go to meetings to be normal. And, and um, so I went and I went back out. And like they say, it was worse. You know, they say it's... Um, it continues to grow stronger, and it did. And boy, did I lose a lot of control. And it was really hard to get back in. It really, and I had such resentments. Uh, I would be like on Facebook and seeing everybody in AA, and I'm like, Argh. I was so angry at everybody because I knew they were at peace and they were happy, and I wanted that, but I didn't know I wanted that. Um, over time, uh, praying, a lot of praying, um, I was able to get back in the rooms. I got myself in the Karen outpatient. And I remember sitting in my bed wondering, like, why can't I get sober again? Why can't I get sober again? And I remember legit and uh, hearing the words. I, like, I heard this, physically heard this. It doesn't have to be this way. Just pray. And I heard those words clear as day. I could hear them now. Um, but I went, I did the outpatient, and I never wanted to leave because I felt safe there and because I didn't trust myself. Um, and uh, I think I came back in, went back out, oof, <laughs> 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 and, um, and then I came back in around right before the plague hit, corona. Um, I remember because it was my birthday time. And um, so I was able to stay sober for a short period of time using Zoom. Um, but I just don't think the fellowship that I needed was not available. I needed that one-on-one -on -one contact. Um, so I relapsed and I was out for a year. I got back in and I was really just ready to do whatever it took. Um, cause I knew at that point, like I just, I tried every method to control, to use, be successful user, drinker. I tried every way. And I know, I know I'm an al alcoholic and I'm a drug addict and I know, um, I always will be one. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, but I can live a better life by using this program. Um, and then I got um, a sponsor, and that sponsor didn't work out. And it was not because I wasn't willing to do whatever it took, because I was willing to do whatever it took. Um, but she had some commitment issues. I was just getting kind of like the runaround. So by the fourth person I got, it was a person um, that used to share all the time, and I really liked what he had to share. So I wound up being, um, he was my sponsor. And I think his intentions were pure, my intentions were pure. However, very fast we fell head over heels for each other. 
And um, I divorced my husband. He divorced his wife. I was five months sober. And they say, don't make any big decisions in your first year. Clearly, I understand that why. <laughs> it was not my best thinking. Um, but I believe that was the journey I was to take. Um, I can see that now. Um, and I hurt a lot of people. I really, my family stopped talking to me. The only person talking to me was my dad. Um, my kids were okay. They were pretty okay. Um, my ex-husband has been remained amazing through this all. Amazing. I was like, huh? I, I don't know. I'm so blessed. Um, I'm so blessed that he's the father of my children. Um, and our relationship turned into be a shit show. It turned into be like, um, I guess, I don't want to say too much, um, but I don't think anybody really knows here. Is. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to be respectful, but it just turned into a shit show. And I did not realize that he was at a demise himself. And I guess the period of when they had the Zoom going on, you know, that took a toll on his mental um, so it was like the typical abusive relationship, controlling, you know, always going on my phone, insisting I'm cheating on him. When I didn't answer my phone, he would drive to work. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was crazy. Like always questioning, why am I wearing makeup? Why am I doing my hair? Why your shirt's too tight? You know, don't wear that outfit. Who are you trying to impress? It was that. Um, and that was a couple months that lasted. And I remember saying to him, you know, I love you, but I love myself more. And that was the first time I really realized what I'm capable of and my worth. Um, and from that moment on, you know, I did have a sponsor. I did get a sponsor. Once he and I got together, I realized, you know, obviously he could not sponsor me anymore. And I did get another sponsor. And we did the Awakenings book because um, I've been through... The previous couple sponsors I had, I went through the big book with them. To, and every time we got to the fourth step, it would just, for some reason, they just, uh, And um, so we were actually like about doing the awakenings. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And, oh, God, that was so hard. It was so much writing, so much work. And I really didn't want to do it, but it was worth it. It was worth it, especially when I got to my fourth and fifth step. Learning how all my defects of character played a part in all my decisions, you know, always having boyfriends, always trying to find it, fill the hole in the soul because all fears, everything related down to my childhood, feeling unloved un and unwanted and lonely. Um, so that's where all my character defects were, um, basically. I didn't have too many resentments. Um, well, I had a resentment <laughs> towards my ex and I still have that resentment to this day. And I choose to keep it. And I know they say you can be free of it, you know, release yourself, you know, um, you know, let go of the resentment, do the resentment prayer. You know, I did the resentment prayer before with him and my heart got soft and I went back to him for a little bit and it got worse then. So this time I didn't want to, I didn't want to forgive him. And I, I, there's times where I'm like, I kind of want to forgive him and times I don't, but I need to remember that he's sick and, um, you know, He's on whatever path he's taking, and uh, he's not in the rooms right now. So um, the first step, when they say about the importance of the first step, I understand that. Because if I don't understand that I am absolutely powerless over this disease, 
I'm going to go try to find it, find control and do it again. I'm going to try some way to make it manageable. I'm going to try to drink successfully. I'm going to try to do drugs successfully. So when I say that's the most important step, I 100% believe that because I have to be 100% convinced that I have no control over this disease whatsoever, and I do. I've tried that, and uh, there's times where I wanted to go back out, you know, because pain and everything, but um, I know what happened, and I know from period uh, the past that, you know, when I pick up, I can't stop, and that is pain that I don't want to go through again. It's easier to stay than go back out and come back in. It really is easier to stay, and, um, you know, giving my, my will over to God and doing God's will has been huge for me. That's where I found peace. Um, I don't have to know what's going to happen. But now that I've gave God a chance to do something, you know, to, to let him do his work and everything, um, I've learned that if I just get out of the way and let God take care of things and ask him for his help, you know, it's, it's a, it really is. There's, it's very freeing for me. Um, I'm not full of that fear and obsessing about this, that, this, that. Because I would obsess, you know, a person did this, a person did that, a person did this, you know, and it all came back to not having control. Again, another defect of character of mine, not having control, um, feeling out of control. And when, you know, handing my will over to God, you know, I don't have to worry about things. I don't have to have control over things and how they're going to work out. I have enough faith to know that, you know, everything works the way it's supposed to work and that God's got a bigger plan and he knows better than I know. Um, so I choose that faith over fear. Um, six and seven, uh, no problem getting rid of my character defects. I want nothing to do with them. They don't go away completely. Um, but that's okay because my part is to, con to continually work on that. And I don't believe they're supposed to all go away. Um, because we're not supposed to be perfect. Um, so it's, you know, I work on those character defects and sometimes they're stronger and it all depends how, how connected I am to my higher power and how good of a program I'm working um, on my defects of character. Um, ninth step, I made amends. Um, the most important amends was my daughter-in-law because she hated me. She never got to know me, um, to sober me. When I met her, I was in my disease and she hated for the way I handled the, um, the divorce, rightly so. Um, she did not trust me. Um, she, she didn't give me a chance. Like when I was supposed to, like um, before, the uh, before I had the divorce, before I, I left my, my ex-husband, I was in charge of the baby shower to decorate the baby shower and stuff. And then when this all came to light, they didn't even want me at the baby shower. And when my grandson was born, they didn't want me at the hospital. Um, they wanted me to stay in the parking lot. Um, and that was painful. Um, but my sponsor kept saying, just focus on the program. Just focus on the steps. Everything will work out. And I didn't have anything else to do but to focus on that. Um, it was pain like I can never imagine to explain the pain I had. Um, but I just prayed about it and handed it all over to God because, again, I know that God, you know, can handle this. And my God's pretty cool. Um, he's kind of like, I don't know, he's like kind of like the Bible guy, but he's not like the Bible guy. I can swear at him when I get mad at him and stuff. So he's pretty, he accepts me no matter what. 
because um, I was able to choose what kind of God I wanted, and that's what I wanted. Somebody who loved me no matter what. And I was let me be human. Um, so, you know, I'm constantly praying. I, I constantly um, am doing things to make my program stronger because I know from past that if I don't continue to grow, my disease is continuing to grow. So if I don't continue to grow, my disease can get a leg up on me. And I know that complacency is not a thing you want in this program. So I remember my sponsor saying how she would, she would um, get on her knees to pray for a period of time and how she felt better about it. And um, so I was like, okay. So I was like, for two weeks, I'm going to get on my knees and pray. And I think it was like after the sixth day, I stopped counting days. Um, I think I felt better because I felt like I was actually doing something to keep the connection to my higher power. Um, and I haven't stopped. <laughs> I know, I, it was months later. I, uh, yeah, way months later. I still haven't stopped. And they're like, I'll be anywhere. Anywhere. And I'll be like, oh, shit, I forgot to pray. And I would drop on my knees. Um, my roommate can attest to that, that. I would just drop on my knees, bam, and just start praying. Um, but that's, that's the action I have to take to continue to keep strong in this program. Um, because as they say, it's a program of action, and it really is. I have to do the work to get the results, because these results will not come to me. Um, so I'm doing that, and then I'm going to try to up the ante by praying at night on my knees. And somebody who's sitting in the front row shared, when he shared a story, that it just takes three minutes to pray. And so I'm like, that's right. It just takes three minutes. I've gotten my life back because I handed it over to God. I worked this program who brought, you know, they say that, um, you know, God brings you to AA, and AA brings you to God, 100%. So how dare I not give God those three minutes of my day when he gave me everything back? Um, so I do that, I, I, and I need to make a constant effort to do that. Um, I sponsor women today, and I love it. Um, that's what I was put on earth to do, is to sponsor. Not sponsor, but to help people, um, whether regards of what. And not in like a codependency kind of way, but to really help people. Um, and I get to help people and grow at the same time. It's a win-win. Because there's never enough you can go through that book. There's always something you hear that's new that you never... You ever notice like when you go through the book, like we read a story and you're like, holy crap, where was that story? I never saw that story here before. You know, it's like that. You always hear something new. And you always hear what you need to hear. Um, I think that's really all I got. I am so grateful for AA because it has really enabled me to figure out, help me get the strength that I needed. Um, and I don't feel lonely. I don't feel unloved and I don't feel unwanted anymore. Um, why? Well, I found you guys. You guys are my people. You guys are my tribe. Um, and also, um, I found my worth. I found my voice. Um, I found that no matter what happens, if I just hand my power over to God, I will be okay. Um, uh, that's happened, you know, many times. So um, it's shown that I will always be okay no matter what happens. I remember I was taking my dog to be put to sleep, and my, um, my roommate said, are you sure you want to go alone? You shouldn't go alone. I said, I'm not alone. I got God. And I truly feel that no matter what happens, I got God. And um, 
So I can't thank this program enough for what it's done for me. I can't imagine going through what I went through without a program. I can tell you that my family talks to me now. My parents, you know, over time, they've changed. Um, and also, I've been able to love them for where they're at. I learned that they did the best they could, and also they are a product of who they were brought up as. They are a product from their parents. And that really helped me understand that, you know, they're not bad people. They did the best they could. Um, so I, I have an amazing relationship with them. I have an amazing relationship with my children. My ex-husband has been so kind through this whole thing. You know, I left the house. I gave him everything. I walked away. That's been hard. That has been hard because I made that place a home for 25 years. Um, and I kept my stuff there because I was going to different places, living in different places. Like this year, I changed my dress four times. And hopefully, I'm not changing my dress anymore for a while. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know where I'm going to live. I have no idea. But I know if I stay sober and connected to God and keep my fellowship and my women with me, I will be okay. But once I let go of something and let the ball drop, my disease has a chance to win, and I can't let it win. I can't go back to all that. So this, this program has saved my life in so many ways, and I'm so forever grateful. That's all I got. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. You can also find a link for this in the description below. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.